0: Well, if you've got a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai, it is the 10th of 12 minor prophets. If you're new with us this morning, we've been going through, I've been walking us through an understanding of how God has spoken to his people, continually speaks to his people, and will one day permanently speak to his, temp- or speak to his people. We see this profoundly through these books that are called the minor prophets you can see them as one long book of 12 independent chapters that seem to repeat the same theme over and over that he is the lord he is gracious and good and he will continue to carry out his promises that we have made or that he has made to us so we come to the second shortest book in the old testament the book of haggai haggai a prophet that was mentioned in the book of ezra chapter 5 and 6 it played a key role in the temple's construction, where the historical context dates back to the Babylonian invasions of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, is there a lot of feedback to you all? I just have this... You know, okay. All right. This, the historical context of this book dates back to a Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, where people were led away in exile and the temple was destroyed. God's temple... Was destroyed. But then these people, amazingly by God's grace, were brought back into their land where they were then told to rebuild what had been done away with. Now, the book of Haggai actually has an emphasis revealed by the structure of the text. And that that emphasis, I think, is clear that centers around the importance of prioritizing the rebuilding of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. That's what this book is about. calling God's people to rebuild what the Lord previously had. It's a short book, only two chapters, only several uh, scores of verses, but the structure is relatively straightforward. The entire book is focused on prophecies that are delivered by Haggai during a four-month period in 512 B.C. Man, that sounds a lot better, doesn't it? Okay. Where these prophecies are designed to motivate and guide the returned exile's in their efforts to build the ruined temple. So in summary, the emphasis of the book is the immediacy of prioritizing God's will. The aim of the book is the calling immediacy of prioritizing God's will. And here it's seen through Reconstruction. So in just two chapters, I think it's clear for us, too, like we're to be receivers of Haggai's prophecies, and we need to reflect on and respond to God's will in such a way that we respond and work for God's glory. Now, I've got four points, and my first point is certainly the longest. So if halfway through you feel like, is this still going on? Yes, but all these won't be spaced out uh, formally. So on your outline that you've received, there's nothing there. So hopefully I'll give you a clear indication of where I'm going. The first part is in the first 11 verses of the book of Haggai, where I think he is teaching us, the book of Haggai is teaching us of how to live like a Christian, he's calling out to these people through prophetic words by telling them how to live in godliness. So, for you and I, how are you and I to believe and live as Christians? I think the first point in these first eleven verses of the book is: we're to how do we live? We're to place ourselves under God's authority. How do we live? Our, how do we live as Christians? We're to place ourselves under God's authority. So, verses one through eleven. It's clear that God acts to convict the spiritual and secular officials of this area and the nation at large of their godlessness and their selfish priorities. God, through these verses, is convicting the spiritual and secular officials of their godliness, of their ungodliness and selfish priorities. Now, Israel has been back of the land at this point for about 16 years. And at first, they appeared as committed to rebuilding the temple. You can imagine, the construction has began. There were semen on the floor. But then they became indifferent to the effort. And foreign opposition gave them all the more reason to spend money elsewhere. The economy seemed to be up in arms. And in fact, they were taking the meager amount of money that they did have and then began uh, spending it not on the temple as they were called to do, but rather on their own homes. So the Lord used Haggai to rebuke them and tell them that this action, not placing themselves under the authority of God's will and God's way, is actually wrong. And it's amazing, isn't it, that you and I, when we don't like work that God has called us to, how quickly it is for us to find excuses in those areas to actually start doing other things and justifying those other things that God has clearly not called us to do. We will use any opposition we can to delay our work. You know, some of you have priorities in your life. You are clearly called to love your wife, yet you can be distracted by pursuing other things in the world. If you have children, guess what? You are called to be a parent to those children until you die or they die with your life. But very often we, we find other things to be called to when it is very clear that we are called to some things and then we divert ourselves to other things. They're doing the same thing. They were called to rebuild the temple, but then they found other things that seem to be... Ah, so easy to start checking off a list. Some Israelites opposed rebuilding the temple altogether, either thinking they should wait for the Messiah to come and build it on his own. He'll be so powerful and so good. Maybe he'll come down. Why, why would I ever try to be the chief architect? I'll just wait for the overwhelming godly architect to come and build all of this on his own. And some of them, they, they just were not only waiting for the Messiah to come, but they thought they were too poor. Or they would say this uh, cutely as, oh, I'm just too thrifty for such a magnificent building project. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a large cathedral or an overwhelming church. I'm not saying that that is the point of this passage or that you and I need to endeavor that, but, man, those were costly endeavors by people there at that time to build something because they thought that would magnify a view of God. These people were called to do that very thing, and yet they found other ways to spend their time and their energy. Now, nevertheless, how these people were diverting their attention away, they did find money to remodel their own houses. God called them to rebuild the temple, so they made an incredible movie room in their home. Comfort for themselves surpassed obedience, and comfort for themselves surpassed their own investment into God's kingdom. Now, you see verses 4 and 9 in this passage, verses 1 through 11, verses 4 through 9, 4 and 9 of this chapter, it says that they were living in nice, paneled houses and managed to keep busy keeping their homes. Now, we don't have any panels in our house, but you can imagine, oh, you're looking at a new home and this house has granite countertop or quartz countertop or it it has nice tile floor or maybe even stained concrete. They had nice, paneled houses, whereas the temple had unfinished walls and were outdone by finished walls and meager homes. Their property were actually testimonies of their own indifference to God. That's, I think, the point of what Haggai is bringing about. Their properties were testimonies to the world and themselves of how they view God. But were they so bad by doing this? The economy was a wreck, after all. So it may look like a poor investment. But look at look at, verses, uh, look at verse 6. The book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 6. And, but by my words and my statue that's Zechariah. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you can never have enough. You drink, but you can never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is worn. And he who earns wages does not put them into a does so, but puts them in a bag with holes. The economy here is portrayed to be in a wreck. They had bad harvest after bad harvest. You had inflation that seemed to go incredibly high. People weren't able to spend money that they did have. They weren't able to save money that they didn't have. Yet God had Haggai tell them to rebuild the temple, even when it seemed like an economic bad decision. Why? Why did God tell them to rebuild the temple? Well, simply because it would please him and it would honor him. It's clear that they were not seeking to please him and honor him. They were seeking to please themselves, and build up honor on their own name. But it's just a building. You think of the temple, it's just a building. Why would an all-powerful, creating God care so much? You know, you and I, we're used to the phrase, the, the church. I'm not saying the church is here, but the church is the people, right? Here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up. Here's all the people. So why does God care so much about this temple being built up? What would it show? And they're in dire straits. Why would an all-powerful, creating God care so much when probably he could do it himself? That above everything, he desired it to be rebuilt so that it would be a clear and public statement that these, value, these people valued God above everything else. It would indicate that he was a higher priority than everything else in their lives. Anything else that was clamoring for attention in their lives, it would be a mark of their faith in his ways, in his promises, that would far outdo their temporary dwellings. The temple symbolized God's covenant with his people and his faithfulness to his promises, including those that he had given to David. Solomon built the temple as God had instructed, signifying God's presence among the Israelites, and Isaiah would even promise its own destruction earlier on, but reconstruction and previous prophets, in this case, also foretold the future temple, and God had told these people... Their mark in redemptive history would be a part of the rebuilding of what God had done. But God's regathering of his people would come through the rebuilding of a temple, and it should have been an immediate priority, serving as a visible sign of God's presence. He had told them to do this. They had an opportunity to be a part of this, but they just didn't do it. So Haggai reminds them that God used a drought. You could think, remember that? Back then, God used a drought to wake you up, to draw your attention to your sin of self-indulgence. You thought you needed more. What if I got rid of all of it? Now how much do you need? You need all of me. And it would serve as a visible sign of God's presence and God's showcase of their own self-indulgence and neglect of God. Now friend, I wonder how God might respond to you after what he's called you to do. God had responded to their indifference by actually giving them a drought. How might God have given you so much, or given you so little, yet how would he respond to you neglecting that altogether? Now let's say you have significant wealth. Let's say you have five hours after work before you go to bed. Let's say you have a personality to connect with people, or a mind to help teach someone, or even a mind to read something and for yourself and to understand What it says, maybe even a family member who isn't a Christian but somehow is always around you. How are you doing with what God has called you to do to be a disciple of God? Counting what he's given, yet being exposed of how you squandered what he's given you. Now, if you're not a Christian here, you may be wondering, what is this guy talking about? Well, we learn in the scriptures that God has made us in his image in order to know him and have a relationship with him. But we, these image bearers, have sinned by rebelling against God, by squandering this gift of life. We've rebelled against God and have actually, by doing so, separated ourselves from Him. But now we desire to be away from Him and in our rebellion to do what we want and to act self-centered. This is what a non-Christian really is, is they want to be separate from God. Yet the Bible explicitly teaches what the wages of those actions are, the wages of those sins are, the wages of of a non-return, the wages of those sins is death, a continual disassociation with God altogether. And you may not be guilty of neglecting to build a Middle Eastern temple, but you are every bit as guilty of neglecting God who has made you and has told you to follow him in all of his ways. But in order to not leave you there, but in his graciousness, it was God who would send Christ Jesus to die for sinners like you, to actually live a life in your place, And if you continue to reject that Christ, to neglect that Christ, as these people neglected the temple, what it says in the Bible is that God will one day judge you. The neglect is repulsive to him. And so for all of our soul's sake, I pray that we continually understand that that what this looks like is these people just getting lazy with a building project is actually a, a sign or a symbol of what we do in our own sin. God has given us life to honor him and adore him. And when we neglect that, we neglect God. Now, if you claim to be one of God's people, you know, you're a Christian. Have you neglected God's church? Have you neglected God's people? Have you neglected God's congregation? As, the ancient, as much as the ancient Israelites neglected God's temple. Now, you and I don't have a temple today. We don't need a temple today. The temple here in Haggai is actually a foretaste of Christ Jesus himself, who's the true temple of Israel, where the glory of God is, but then we see in the New Testament that we're told that the the church, us, the people of God, other Christians, are the earthly temple, where the Spirit of God dwells and shines. And so a response of that is, are you neglecting that? Are you neglecting God's people? Are you neglecting those whom have the indwelling of God's Spirit? Think of it this way. Have you grieved the very temple of God? Like these people were doing, leaving the construction materials and equipment off to the side. What a grievous thing that was toward a God. Have you and I, though, when looking around at other Christians, have we neglected in the same way? Have you ignored the people of God? Christian, there is so much you and I can learn from contemplating this short prophecy, even in this part. Are you investing your all in Christ's kingdom's growth? Are you investing your all in Christ's kingdom's enjoyment? You know, I know that a lot of us who have family members, at some point, the reality of what maybe time or money changes when you see a family member growing. You know, so for some of you who are grandparents, you're going, okay, Christmas is going to get a little bit longer. Christmas is going to be even more exciting and intense because there's just more people in the living room. I wonder if you think that way when more people come into our church's membership. Do you think, there's more people to pray for? Or, man, this is more people to pray for. Oh, here come people in the door. They've got six kids. They might look at that and go, oh man, we do not have enough crayons. Or I don't care what we do or don't have. There are six more people that I get to tell about the gospel, too. Are you investing in Christ's kingdom's growth and enjoyment? How? What has kept you back from investing your all in God? All that we know about these people is that they were lazy. What a thing on your tombstone. Now, they'll show themselves to respond in a little bit. But friend, look at what God has done for you. Look at what God has given to you in Christ. And look at where God, right now, look at where God has actually placed you. There are hundreds of people in this room who are desperately in need of being reminded that their march towards Zion is not in loneliness Their march towards Zion will not go in vain, and their march towards Zion can be held when they keep their face on Christ Himself. And sometimes it takes you saying, Look at Zion, rather than quickly rushing out the back of the door or opening up your membership directory and doing nothing with it. Perhaps you think you lack adequate resources. Perhaps you're in a relationship in which you're not trusting God as you know you should. Perhaps some decision that you need to make looms before you. God, though, promises you so much in the Christ that he has given you. But he does also call you to a commitment that is whole, not half. Friend, if you do wonder what God has called you to do, I really suggest you finding the answers of that question in the very Bible that I pray you have. If you ever wonder what God has called you to do, I encourage you to start with the book of Matthew and, and read it. What is, has what is Jesus himself called those who are said to follow him, what has he called these disciples to do? He actually answers that for you. You may be wondering, what, what is my role in this life? What has God called me to do? The Bible, trust me, the Bible actually clarifies that for you. In the situation addressed by Haggai, the people were stingy with God. And ironically, that stinginess kept them poor. They were bad investors. They had an opportunity, but they kept their money in their pockets, and what God did was empty their pockets. Charles Spurgeon said, If men are selfish and keep their wealth to themselves and rob God of his own portion, they shall not prosper. Or if they do, no blessing shall come with it. So here as God exhorts his people to look at verse 7 it says consider your ways. I think it's an easy call and a simple understanding of this passage for you and me to consider for a moment. In contextually in this passage to consider for a moment if your lack of giving to God's ways has led to your financial difficulties. This is the book of Haggai. Has your stinginess led to your poverty? maybe and god is calling you to fear him in such a way to amazingly amazingly return to him haggai says to consider your life and consider how you invest in god's ways you know you talk when you see when you see giving or giving to the lord talked about in the new testament it always comes with an understanding of immense generosity and generosity is not to be viewed as what is given generosity is to be understood and viewed as what's kept Right, So if you're a billionaire, well, that'd be something. And you give away a million dollars, that's a million dollars. Can you imagine receiving a million dollars? I can. I do it all the time. It's never going to happen, but I'd love it. What's a million dollars to a billionaire? Just a mark of not being generous. And God has given us everything and has called us to live a life in following him to where we're seen to the world through love and joy and prayer and fellow discipleship by being a generous life of giving of our whole lives. Ask yourself, what would be life, what life oh, sorry. ask yourself, what would life be like if you got all that you wanted? Dream for a second. What if you got all that you wanted? What if you got all that you wanted? Imagine the checklist. Now Is God there? Was he a part of that? You know, some of us who went to youth group in the 90s, you talk about God's house, and it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It's a big, big yard where you can play football. It's got a big old foosball table, and you just want to go, Stop. I don't care about a football yard. I don't care about a table. I want to be in the presence of the Lord. That's what the Bible teaches, where he is there. But if he's neglected by your checklist of if you could have everything you wanted, if he's neglected, then friend, you have found your idol. And you have found the thing that you need to kill and to put off. Consider what our church's commitment to God, God's work should be. Consider not only for yourselves, but our whole church, what our commitment to God's work should be. A church's trials of difficulty in a church's Opportunity within prosperity should cause the members of the church, whether hard times or glorious times, to actually examine themselves and the scriptures. What is our church holding back in this moment? What is God's will for his household, our church in particular, the temple in which God's spirit lives? What what does he have for us? Now, in our case, I think we've got progress to make. I, I hear sometimes that people talk about how it's just negative all the time. And some people are like, it's just great all the time. Regardless of your opinion or your di- diagnosis, what does God want from us as a church? And may Haggai be a shot across the bow for us. Are we as a church giving our all, individually, the people, the temple of God, are we as a church giving our all for God's glory to be made more broadly and deeply than ever before in this humble gathering of people? How are churches', churches centerness on the word How can it help comfort us in our sin as it confronts us in our sin? This is what Haggai's message did here, that the Word of God comes to these people to confront them, and what a blessing it is to be confronted by the Lord. And pray that our church would cultivate a life in which we would regularly know the conviction of sin, and in which we regularly would confess our sins and the battles that we go through to one another. And with those convictions, we're to prod and point One another to the redemption and fulfillment of the gospel of Christ Jesus. This is actually just a simple view of what biblical counseling and counseling altogether is, after all. Us coming around, other believers, understanding they're in their sin, or maybe understanding they're going through a battle and say, Man, can I bit by bit help point you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all those things? After all, conviction and confession always lead to liberation and peace. And the only way to be free from our sins. Is first to recognize them, because sins just don't fall off; they don't just go away. You know, for a little bit of time, Brooke and I splurged, and we had a membership to a car wash. Big time, right? We had that, and I drive a white truck. And what's what's miserable about a white truck? It's always dirty. But man, I'd go into that car wash, I'd come out, and I'm like, I am amazing. And now we don't have a membership, and I, I just kind of remember. Yeah, I don't have a uh, what's it called, a car wash membership. And so I just hope and pray that it will either rain on my truck or that all the dirt will just kind of passively come off a little bit. If I just drive really fast down the road, then all the bugs will just fly over and I won't have to wash my car ever again. And I fear that that's how you and I often see our own sin. If I just keep going, it'll just, over time, not be a part of my life anymore. Teenagers, your pursuit of pornography, that pursuit will continue unless you take action against it older men and women that pursuit of pornography that will continue to fester and kill your soul unless you take action against it the anger that you have to those people who have hurt you the lack of forgiveness that you may expose to other people the amount of sin that you do to that won't just fall away by the wayside god's word calls us to kill it and to take action by a sword that he has given us by the truth of the gospel it won't just go away on its own. We have to work at that. And Satan wants you to think of conviction and confession as a negative and bad thing because admittedly, they do taste really bad at the beginning. No one wants to look at another person and say, you want to you wanna know what's bad about me? It's this truth. Because we're afraid that they'll run away. <laughs> or we're afraid, we're afraid that once we expose that, then God will not do anything with it. But God lovingly refines us. He lovingly transform us by the understanding of our sin and by the conviction to kill it and the confession of it so that we can announce before him that we want to go to work and so that others can announce to us that they want to help us go to work where God lovingly refines us by removing from our lives first this, then that. And the only way we can learn the most positive news of all the gospel is through the most negative confession of all, how we deserve God's wrath as a penalty for our sins. Now, unapologetically, I think this is why, This is a, guys, this is like a 15-minute rant right here, but I, I pray it's all from this text. But I think unapologetically, this is why church membership is so serious and so encouraging. How can we help each other gain victory over our sin if we do not work to know one another in the church, if we do not make sure that others know the truth about our own lives? I laugh when I ask people how they're doing and they say, fine. Because I want to slap them and I say, no, it's not. No, you're not. I'm not fine. Slap me when I say that. How can we help each other if we do not know each other? How could these people be helped by God unless he convicted them of their sin? And when we do the work of discipling, of encouraging, of listening, of praying, of instructing with the word We do the work of building up the Lord's house. Do not read Haggai and think primarily of a building program for a church's meeting house. Please understand that the church buildings today should not be equated with the Old Testament temple. It is Christ who is our temple on this side of redemptive history. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we who have been brought into Christ and are called his body are now the temple in which Christ's spirit lives. So this is the temple that we're to see be built up. And you cannot build up the temple of God unless you are knowingly a part of the temple of God. If you are a true follower of Christ, you want to see the people who sit around you Sunday after Sunday built up in Christ. Building his temple today does not have to do with the fabric or furnishings of a meeting house. A church's property is a means to the end for a faithful kingdom building. The true church will be built up as God's truth is courageously preached and as we give ourselves to its understanding as we are convicted by it. This is how our congregations and what our congregations must not neglect. So God here calls men and women to see themselves. These people are seen lazy and neglectful. Back to the question at the beginning. I wonder how you're seen by God. God here calls men and women to see themselves. His thunderously, he has thunderously come out as an exposition of their hearts, and look at verses 12 through 15. By God's grace, he calls them to correct them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shethiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them and the people had feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up. The spirit of Zerubbabel and the sons of Shutiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house, and the Lord of hosts their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Here is a picture of what the Bible calls repentance. The people actually changed their priorities. Their priorities were not the Lord, but their own paneled houses. But then they feared the Lord and obeyed him. Observe for a moment the several aspects of what repentance looks like here in this passage and also overwhelmingly throughout all the scriptures. There is an action within repentance, it is not just a stirring of affections of sorrow. In verse 12, the people obeyed the Lord after having disobeyed him. What he called them to do? Rebuild the temple. What were they not doing? Not rebuilding the temple. What does it look like to obey the Lord? In these people's case, rebuild the temple. There was a motivation of repentance. Secondly, the people feared the Lord. Why did they decide, oh man, you know what? It it might be a good idea to start rebuilding the temple because after all, he said so. Well, who is he? He's the Lord and they feared him. He is holy, mighty, and majestic. That is, they began to consider who he is and how they should regard his words. Finally, there is a cause of repentance. So there's obedience, there's motivation, and there's a cause of repentance. It says in verse 14, "The Lord stirred up the spirits of these people." The Lord was active in all of us, we see from this. What does repentance look like in your life? Understanding of where you've sinned and a summoning of the Lord to a life of righteousness and obedience. The Lord works repentance in our whole, in our souls. It is him who stirs us up. And so our repentance contributes to his praise and his glory. It's an incredibly kind of what God chose to do through these people. That is what happens when God's presence actually enters a sinner. They obey. They are motivated to serve him. And there is a cause of a holy summoning of which they want to. You think about the applause that can happen toward a man who aims to flee sin. You might come around someone and say, I'm struggling with this again and again and again. And I want you to be a part of my army so that you can help me fight against this. And what will that good friend do as you fight bit by bit against that sin? Maybe you receive a phone call at 7 p.m. saying, hey, I'm, up. I'm on my way to this place. Please help me go in from it. Please talk me out of it. And it says, turn around. And when you do, he says, man, praise God. Look at what he's doing in your life. The motivation of partnership towards the Lord's glory is what is that, what is being exposed here. So God tells the Israelites... Through Haggai, when this happens, like an applause from heaven, I am with you. As he, stirs up his, as he stirs up their spirits. 23 days after this first prophecy, the people obeyed. See that from verse 1 to verse 15. They found a more sound and long-lasting investment than remodeling their own homes. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've come to realize that you have sinned against God, then know that God has come in Christ for people just like you the awareness, which is called conviction, the awareness of sin, the conviction of sin, to where that stirs in your heart to, I don't want to go there anymore. I want to go to God, that repentance of turning from something to something else. Know that God has come in Christ for people like you, people who recognize their sin, who confess these sins, who will look to Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and say, I want that because I believe it will save me. I will believe, I will believe that it will bring me more joy than anything else. Everything else is rubbish. And know that he did die for you by your repentance of your sins and your following of him. Friend, today is the day of repentance. Soon enough, this whole world will slip away. We're not promised anything. We're not promised tomorrow. Not even promised this afternoon. As glorious as it seems to be from a weather standpoint, so our repentance must be today. Where the very fabric of what we regard as permanent will pass away. I've got a friend This may bother some of you, but I've got a friend who just litters. (laughs) I don't know how he stands it. He'll just take a wrapper off a mint and we'll just throw it down on the ground. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And he wrongly but happily is like, it'll all burn someday. And I'm like, pick pick it up. What's wrong with you? Don't lay that trash in Oklahoma. But he's from Arkansas, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) Whatever we regard as permanent will be revealed as passing. And you do not know when that day will be. But now is the time for you to repent like the people in Israel in Haggai's day, where you obey the Lord, you fear the Lord, you're stirred up by the Lord, to where you honor the Lord with not your half life, but your whole life. Now, brothers and sisters in our church, may our church have the faith and the courage to obey God, to work to remember what God has done in our lives and to share it with others in order to encourage them. May we be a people who see ourselves as we really are, who repent of our sins, who invite loving correction, and who respond to correction in humble repentance. You can always know how spiritually mature someone is is when they're, repented, or when they're corrected by another brother or sister. We, we should want to be refined in the Spirit of Christ, even if it means like we're receiving a lashing, but it's for our own good. Point number two, we're to place ourselves under the authority of God, but then secondly, we're to stay committed to God's plans. Place ourselves under his authority and keep being committed to his plans. The main blessing that Haggai points are to spiritual blessings. What God promises in the first half of chapter 2, God assured his people in in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2, God assures his people that his spirit would remain with them. That by doing this, that by pursuing him, that by honoring him, his spirit would remain within them, reaffirming his timeless promise to be ever-present. They might have feared his absence during the Babylonian captivity or their disobedience in not rebuilding the temple after their return, but God assures them that his constant presence will be with them. Additionally, God promised them peace, shalom, Within the new temple, this is in verse 9 of chapter 2, this peace encompasses more than material prosperity. It's meant forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, resulting in profound happiness. God has pledged such peace to them earlier in Leviticus, conditioned on their obedience. But despite their historical disobedience, which we see as the people of God have done all of their lives, maybe it's even a testimony of you, regular sin and coming back to the Lord, God was now foretelling and delivering this peace once again. He also pledged that his glory would fill the new temple with hints of a future event, a profound shaking of heaven and earth, possibly alluding to the instability of the Persian empire. Yet, Haggai's prophecy, as later clarified and explained in Hebrews, points to a reality Haggai could only get a glimpse of. It would be the second coming of Christ, which would impact the earth by shaking and thunder and applause from the heavens, where the blessing of the Old Testament Prophets converge with the eschatological promises fulfilled in Christ where the new heavens and new earth would come like a smashing down kingdom where all of God's glory would be filled from beginning to end. Friend, these words seem unique in their format. You might read these words and go, I don't really know what's happening. But they're to take the reader and you to a position of trust and resolution to a commitment to God's plan. I promise you, when faced with temptation, Promise you from God's word that if you turn from that temptation and say, God, help me to pursue a righteous path, a righteous decision, a righteous life that will bring you peace and joy. You may dive in in the short term of something that seems to be great and it will leave you devastated. No one wakes up the next morning from a horrible accident with someone else that doesn't belong to them and feel nothing but shame. Why would the Lord honor that? but the Lord will honor that reversing from a pathway to hell to a pathway of righteousness. These words are to take the reader and to you to a position of trust and resolution to a commitment to God's plans. Christ did come and is the true temple. And Christ will come again where we'll be in the full eternal presence of a good king on his holy throne. And in the meantime, we're to stay committed to God's plans. The third thing, is that we please God. We please God with our lives by living holy lives. I don't know if you've ever played a sport. And sometimes in a sport, you want to win. Well, hopefully, all the time, or you're a loser. Uh, win. <laughs> so if you don't want to win, get out, right? In sports, you want to win. But oftentimes, in sports, you want to please your coach. Or maybe in academics, you really want that professor or that teacher to say, man, good job, great effort, you're doing well. Friends, we please God. We honor God by living holy lives. We see physical blessings being brought down in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Some, some of you might be using the NIV where there's an edit off to the side that talks about blessings for a defiled people. Spiritual realities do not consist of wood or stone, but could you not make something consecrated simply by bringing it into contact with something else that is consecrated? Basically, can our temple become holy even if we build it? Building a temple does not consecrate or sanctify anyone. Defilement, however, can be passed down by touching it. And Haggai warned the people that defilement was spreading throughout God's people, which he knew from the law. See that in Numbers 19. But perhaps God was referring to their godless selfishness that was denounced in chapter 1. Perhaps they were defiling themselves in other ways. You see the people of God doing this by marrying people they shouldn't marry, by forming forming idols that they shouldn't have done. These types of things would have been addressed in the next century by Ezra. But clearly the chief sin in this book was their lack of enthusiasm for rebuilding the temple and restoring worship there. And what's being talked about here is their, their lack of enthusiasm for honoring the Lord with their lives is actually contagious. And it defiles other people around them. Friends, your testimony about God might be a defiling picture of who God is. Or your testimony about God may be a righteous view of who God is. We please God by living holy lives. Even our most religious actions, in this case, are often not necessarily acceptable. And so we must keep ourselves to the book, keep ourselves under God's path, keep ourselves underway to where we would worship him in an acceptable way. But still, as the people began to repent, God promised an end would come to the scarcity that they had known. You see this in verses 15 through 17. When the Lord asks, is there yet any seed left in the barn? Where he basically means, I hope you planted all those seeds because I'm going to make them grow. Unlike their recent past, the year's harvest would be good. In verse 19, it says, from this day on, I will bless you. Once again, God was renewing his covenant with them in his own land. Fourth thing we see, and finally, uh, we see, if we want to know how to live life as a Christian, fourthly, we see that we're to serve God faithfully. What does it mean to live life like a Christian? It means to serve God faithfully. And you think of what the opposite of faithfully is. It's not hard, it's unfaithful. But we're to serve him faithfully. Chief among God's promised blessings through Haggai was the promise of a Messiah. Through, Through all of these events and things, through all of this... Magis, magisterial construction project was actually the promise of a Messiah who would come, which is the most, finds its most explicit form in the final verses of the book, verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai in the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the, stone, the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots with their riders, and the horses of their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The final verses in Haggai, the Lord speaks to Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah, using imagery of a final judgment, and the end of all worldly empires. And God also makes a peculiar promise to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's role remains historically covered in mystery as he disappears from historical records. Now, some speculate that King Darius uh, may have seen him as a rival and removed him. Nevertheless, God designates Zerubbabel as a signet ring, a significant honor. And this symbolizes the restoration of the Davidic line as Zerubbabel is part of the lineage. To Jesus, you see this in Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. So what God is doing is that through you, all these things will come. And Zerubbabel typifies, in many ways, a type of Christ in various ways, foreshadowing an ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. For example, the phrase in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, that he would be desired of all nations, refers to the Messiah and the promise that the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. You think the temple is great? Wait till the true and better one comes. In the promise of, in verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house alludes to God's bodily presence in the person of Christ Jesus. So repentant people in Haggai's time received these blessings. The same blessings are that are available to us today. Obedience to God often leads to Blessings. Far too often people are afraid of that. Obedience to God leads to blessings. But the most significant blessing comes through Christ's work on the cross, regardless of our obedience. Obedience is a place of blessing for Christians, and we should avoid self-absorption and God neglect. And as repentant Christians, we are given the gift of God's indwelling spirit and peace with God through Christ's work. This is where we understand that the gospel actually leads to a life that desires to be under Christ's authority, and the gospel doesn't have a certain amount of works that you and I can do in order to, ger- order to earn God's grace and mercy. So my Christian friend, work in your life in order to magnify the cross of Christ that has been given to you so that everyone can see some of what Christ's work on the cross accomplished in your life. Trials and hard times will come, as will conviction for sin, And occasionally you'll be tempted to condemn God for these, but you're not to do that. When you stop to look at the cross and the ways of God that he has blessed you with by the cross, it becomes exceedingly difficult to condemn him. Because it was at the cross, you see how much he loved you. And you see how much there he has sought to empower you. You see the care and the trouble for how he has taken you. And so you know in your own heart. You know those things, whether a hymn or a book or a passage of scripture or memory, You know those things that magnify Christ's cross in your own soul. Find those things. Use them in your life. Find books and hymns and verses that magnify the cross by speaking of Christ's atonement and feed your soul on the magnificent love of God for sinners like you and me. May our church know Christ's blessings in our lives together. Of course, attending church won't save us, nor will becoming of a member of a church save you, but certainly... Giving to a church's program will not save you as well, but none of these things are what the message of Haggai is for us. We should give evidence for our salvation through our church as we seek to build one another up and reach the lost for the sake of all that he has given us they might have for themselves. It's the most immediate implication of the book of Haggai for us today. These people were called to pursue the Lord with their everything. With their everything. May we do so with our whole lives. Let's pray.